0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear "Bader Meinhof by Don DeLillo.
1: She was looking at Ulrika now, head and upper body, her neck rope scorched, although she didn't know for certain what kind of implement had been used in the hanging.
0: The story was chosen by Chang-Rae Lee, who has written both fiction and nonfiction for the magazine. He is the author of four novels, the most recent of which, The Surrendered, was published in March by Riverhead. He joins us from a studio in Princeton where he teaches. Hi, Chang-Rae. Hi, Deborah. So when we first talked about doing the podcast, you were quite certain that you wanted to read something of DeLillo's. Has his work always been important to you?
1: It has. uh, Really from the time I began writing in earnest which was probably a little after college. I'd read White Noise in in college and was entranced uh, and delighted. But after college, I dove into really all the novels that had been published up to that time. And I found myself completely, completely overtaken by him. I thought he was an incredible writer.
0: You know, there seems as though there's been a a sort of gradual progression in his work from this sort of busy, zany quality of, of end zone or white noise to uh, more sort of stately reflectiveness of some of the recent novels like Falling Man or or his new one, Point Omega.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where do you think this story, Bader meinhof fits into that?
1: It's funny because it's, uh, it's a story that really reminds me a lot of The Body Artist.
0: Just a few novels ago. Yeah, just yeah.
1: a few novels ago. There's a sense about engaging experience in The Body Artist, a wonder about who people are moment to moment. The character in this story, in Bader meinhof she's considering herself moment to moment, and then also, of course, completely in a state of erasure. She can't quite recognize herself as she's distorted by the kind of creepy force of this fellow she's encountering.
0: So the story is set during a visit to a museum, which is showing a series of paintings by Gerhard Richter which are based on uh, old photographs of the Bader meinhof left-wing terrorist cell in Germany. These are real paintings, and Richter took these photographs and worked with them in black and white, recreating them but blurring them and obscuring certain details, making them harder to read. The story spends quite a lot of time talking about these images and also about the people who are in them. Ulrike is Ulrike Meinhof. Gudrun is Gudrun Enslin. Both of them were members of Bader meinhof who were found hanged in their prison cells. Is there anything else that you think we should be aware of before we listen to the story?
1: The, the main detail is there was a lot of controversy about the nature of those deaths. Obviously, they were presented and, and depicted as suicides. But as I recall from, from my reading, uh, there was a lot of suspicion and paranoia about who had actually killed these young people, and that's discussed in the story.
0: We'll talk more after the story. Now here's chang Li Lee reading "Batter meinhof by Don DeLillo.
1: She knew there was someone else in the room. There was no outright noise, just an intimation behind her, a faint displacement of air. She'd been alone for a time, seated on a bench in the middle of the gallery with the paintings set around her, a cycle of fifteen canvases. And this is how it felt to her, that she was sitting as a person does in a mortuary chapel, keeping watch over the body of a relative or a friend. This was sometimes called the viewing, she believed. She was looking at Ulrika now, head and upper body, her neck rope-scorched, although she didn't know for certain what kind of implement had been used in the hanging. She heard the other person walk toward the bench, a man's heavy shuffling stride, and she got up and went to stand before the picture of Ulrika, one of three related images, Ulrica dead in each, lying on the floor of her cell, head in profile. The canvases varied in size. The woman's reality, the head, the neck, the rope burn, the hair, the facial features, were painted, picture to picture, in nuances of obscurity and pall, a detail clearer here than there, the slurred mouth in one painting appearing nearly natural elsewhere, all of it unsystematic. Why do you think he did it this way? She did not turn to look at him. So shadowy, no color. She said, I don't know, and went to the next set of images, called Man Shot Down. This was Andreas Badr. She thought of him by his full name or surname. She thought of Meinhoff. She saw Meinhoff as first name only, Ulrika, and the same was the case with Gudrun. I'm trying to think what happened to them. They committed suicide, or the state killed them. He said, the state. Then he said it again, deep-voiced, in a tone of melodramatic menace, trying out a line reading that might be more suitable. She wanted to be annoyed, but felt instead a vague chagrin. It wasn't like her to use this term, the state, in the ironclad context of supreme public power. This was not her vocabulary. The two paintings of Botter, dead in his cell, were the same size, but addressed the subject somewhat differently, and this is what she did now. She concentrated on the differences, arm, shirt, unknown object at the edge of the frame, the disparity or uncertainty. I don't know what happened, she said. I'm only telling you what people believe. It was 25 years ago. I don't know what it was like then in Germany with bombings and kidnappings. They made an agreement, don't you think? Some people believe they were murdered in their cells. A pact. They were terrorists, weren't they? When they're not killing other people, they're killing themselves, he said. She was looking at Andreas Badr. First one painting, then the other, then back again. I don't know. Maybe that's even worse in a way. It's so much sadder. There's so much sadness in these pictures. There's one that's smiling, he said. This was Gudrun in Confrontation two. I don't know if that's a smile. It could be a smile. It's the clearest image in the room, maybe the whole museum. She's smiling, he said. She turned to look at Gudrun across the gallery and saw the man on the bench, half-turned her way, wearing a suit with tie unknotted, going prematurely bald. She only glimpsed him, He was looking at her, but she was looking past him to the figure of Gudrun in a prison smock, standing against a wall and smiling, most likely, yes, in the middle picture. Three paintings of Gudrun, maybe smiling, smiling, and probably not smiling. You need special training to look at these pictures. I can't tell the people apart. Yes, you can. Just look. You have to look. She heard a note of slight reprimand in her voice. She went to the far wall to look at the painting of one of the jail cells, with tall bookshelves covering nearly half the canvas and a dark shape, wraith-like, that may have been a coat on a hanger. You're a grad student, or you teach art, he said. I'm frankly here to pass the time. That's what I do between job interviews. She didn't want to tell him that she'd been here three straight days. She moved to the adjacent wall, a little closer to his position on the bench. Then she told him. Made your money, he said, unless you're a member. I'm not a member. Then you teach art. I don't teach art. You want me to shut up? Shut up, Bob. Only my name's not Bob. In the painting of the coffins being carried through a large crowd, she didn't know there were coffins at first. It took her a long moment to see the crowd itself. There was the crowd, mostly an ashy blur with a few figures in the center right foreground discernible as individuals standing with their backs to the viewer. And then there was a break near the top of the canvas, a pale strip of earth or roadway, and then another mass of people or trees. And it took some time to understand that the three whitish objects near the center of the picture were coffins being carried through the crowd or simply propped on beers. Here were the bodies of Andreas Badr, Gudrun Eslin, and a man whose name she could not recall. He had been shot in his cell, Botter had also been shot. Gudrun had been hanged. She knew that this had happened about a year and a half after Ulrika. Ulrika dead in May, she knew, of 1976. Two men entered the gallery, followed by a woman with a cane. All three stood before the display of explanatory material, reading. The painting of the coffins had something else that wasn't easy to find. She hadn't found it until the second day yesterday, and it was striking once she'd found it, and inescapable now, an object at the top of the painting, just left of center, a tree perhaps, in the rough shape of a cross. She went closer to the painting, hearing the woman with the cane move toward the opposite wall. She knew that these paintings were based on photographs, but she hadn't seen them and didn't know whether there was a bear tree a dead tree beyond the cemetery in one of the photos that consisted of a spindly trunk with a single branch remaining or two branches forming a transverse piece near the top of the trunk. Tell me what you see. Honestly, I want to know. A group entered, led by a guide, and she turned for a moment, watching them collect at the first painting in the cycle the portrait of Ulrika as a much younger woman, a girl, really, distant and wistful, her hand and face... "'half floating in the somber dark around her. "'I realize now that the first day I was only barely looking. "'I thought I was looking, "'but I was only getting a bare inkling "'of what's in these paintings. "'I'm only just starting to look.' "'They stood looking, together, "'at the coffins and trees and crowd. "'The tour guide began to speak to her group. "'And what do you feel when you look?' he said. "'I don't know. It's complicated. "'Because I don't feel anything.' I think I feel helpless. These paintings make me feel how helpless a person can be. Is that why you're here three straight days? To feel helpless, he said. I'm here because I love the paintings, more and more. At first I was confused, and still am a little, but I know I love the paintings now. It was a cross. She saw it as a cross, and it made her feel, right or wrong, that there was an element of forgiveness in the picture, that the two men and the woman, terrorists, and Ulrika before them, terrorist, were not beyond forgiveness. But she didn't point out the cross to the man standing next to her. That was not what she wanted, a discussion on the subject. She didn't think she was imagining a cross, seeing a cross in some free strokes of paint, but she didn't want to hear someone raise elementary doubts. They went to a snack bar and sat on stools arranged along a narrow counter that measured the length of the front window. She watched the crowds on 7th Avenue, half the world rushing by, and barely tasted what she ate. I missed the first day pop, he said, where the stock soars like mythically, 400% in a couple of hours. I got there for the aftermarket, which turned out to be weak, then weaker. When the stools were all occupied, people stood and ate. She wanted to go home and check her phone messages. "'I make appointments now. I shave, I smile. "'My life is living hell,' he said, blandly, chewing as he spoke. "'He took up space, a tall, broad man with a looseness about him, "'something offhand and shambling. "'Someone reached past her to snag a napkin from the dispenser. "'She had no idea what she was doing here, talking to this man. "'He said, no color, no meaning. "'What they did had meaning. "'It was wrong, but it wasn't blind and empty.' I think the painter's searching for this. And how did it end the way it did? I think he's asking this. Everybody dead. How else could it end? Tell the truth, he said. You teach art to handicapped children. She didn't know whether this was interesting or cruel, but saw herself in the window wearing a grudging smile. I don't teach art. This is fast food and I'm trying to eat slow. I don't have an appointment until 3.30. Eat slow and tell me what you teach. I don't teach. She didn't tell him that she was also out of work. She'd grown tired of describing her job, administrative, with an educational publisher. So why make the effort, she thought, now that the job and the company no longer existed? Problem is, it's against my nature to eat slow. I have to remind myself, but even then I can't make the adjustment. But that wasn't the reason. She didn't tell him that she was out of work because it would give them a situation in common. She didn't want that an inflection of mutual sympathy, a comradeship. Let the tones stay scattered. She drank her apple juice and looked at the crowds moving past, at faces that seemed completely knowable for half a second or so, then were forgotten forever in far less time than that. He said, We should have gone to a real restaurant. It's hard to talk here. You're not comfortable. No, this is fine. I'm kind of in a rush now. He seemed to consider this and then reject it, undiscouraged. She thought of going to the washroom and then thought no. She thought of the dead man's shirt, Andreas Bader's shirt, dirtier or more bloody in one picture than in the other. And you have a three o'clock, she said. Three-thirty, but that's a long way off. That's another world where I fix my tie and walk in and tell them who I am. He paused a moment, then looked at her. You're supposed to say, who are you? She saw herself smile, but she said nothing. She thought that maybe Orica's rope burn wasn't a burn, but the rope itself, if it was a rope and not a wire or a belt or something else. He said, That's your line. Who are you? I set you up beautifully, and you totally miss your cue. They'd finished eating, but their paper cups were not yet empty. They talked about rents and leases, parts of town. She didn't want to tell him where she lived. She lived just three blocks away, in a faded brick building whose limitations and malfunctions she'd come to understand as the texture of her life, to be distinguished from a normal day's complaints. Then she told him. They were talking about places to run and bike, and he told her where he lived and what his jogging route was, and she said that her bike had been stolen from the basement of her building, and when he asked her where she lived, she told him, more or less nonchalantly, and he drank his diet soda and looked out the window or into it, perhaps, at their faint reflections paired on the glass. When she came out of the bathroom, he was standing at the kitchen window as if waiting for a view to materialize. There was nothing out there but dusty masonry and glass, the rear of the industrial loft building on the next street. It was a studio apartment, with the kitchen only partly walled off and the bed in the corner of the room smallish, without posts or headboard, covered in a bright Berber robe, the only object in the room of some slight distinction. She knew she had to offer him a drink. She felt awkward, unskilled at this, at unexpected guests. Where to sit, what to say, these were matters to consider. She didn't mention the gin she kept in the freezer. You've lived here, what? Just under four months. I've been a nomad, she said. Sublet's? Staying with friends, always short term. Ever since the marriage failed. The marriage. He said this in a modified version of the baritone rumble he'd used earlier for The State. I've never been married. Believe that, he said. Most of my friends my age, all of them really, married, children, divorced, children. You want kids someday? When is someday? Yes, I think so. I think of kids. It makes me feel selfish to be so wary of having a family. Never mind do I have a job or not. I'll have a job soon, a good one. That's not it. I'm in awe of raising, basically, someone so tiny and soft. They drank seltzer with wedges of lemon, seated diagonally at the low wooden table, the coffee table where she ate her meals. The conversation surprised her a little. It was not difficult, even in the pauses. The pauses were unembarrassed, and he seemed honest in his remarks. His cell phone rang. He dug it out of his body and spoke briefly, then sat with the thing in his hand, looking thoughtful. I should remember to turn it off. But I think, if I turn it off, what will I miss? Something so incredible. The call that changes everything. Something so incredible. The total life-altering call. That's why I respect my cell phone. She wanted to look at the clock. That wasn't your interview just now, was it? Cancelled? He said it wasn't, and she sneaked a look at the clock on the wall. She wondered whether she wanted him to miss his interview. That couldn't be what she wanted. Maybe you're like me, he said. You have to find yourself on the verge of something happening before you can begin to prepare for it. That's when you get serious. Are we talking about fatherhood? Actually, I cancelled the interview myself. When you were in there, he said, nodding toward the bathroom. She felt an odd panic. He finished his seltzer, tipping his head back until an ice cube slid into his mouth. They sat a while, letting the ice melt. Then he looked directly at her, fingering one of the dangled ends of his necktie. Tell me what you want. She sat there. Because I sense you're not ready, and I don't want to do something too soon. But, you know, we're here. She didn't look at him. I'm not one of those controlling men. I don't need to control anyone. Tell me what you want. Nothing. Conversation, talk, whatever. Affection, he said. This is not a major moment in the world. It'll come and go, but we're here, so... I want you to leave, please. He shrugged and said, whatever. Then he sat there. You said, tell me what you want. I want you to leave. He sat there. He didn't move. He said, I canceled the thing for a reason. I don't think this is the reason, this particular conversation. I'm looking at you. I'm saying to myself, you know what she's like? She's like someone convalescing. I'm willing to say it was my mistake. I mean, we're here. How did this happen? There was no mistake. Let's be friends, he said. I think we have to stop now. Stop what? What are we doing? He was trying to speak softly to take the edge off the moment. She's like someone convalescing. Even in the museum, this is what I thought. All right, fine. But now we're here. This whole day, no matter what we say or do, it'll come and go. I don't want to continue this. Be friends. This is not right. No, be friends. His voice carried an intimacy so false it seemed a little threatening. She didn't know why she was still sitting here. He leaned toward her then, placing a hand lightly on her forearm. I don't try to control people. This is not me. She drew away and stood up, and he was all around her then. She tucked her head into her shoulder. He didn't exert pressure or try to caress her breasts or hips, but held her in a kind of loose containment. For a moment, she seemed to disappear, tucked and still, in breathless hiding. Then she pulled away. He let her do this and looked at her so levelly, with such measuring effect, that she barely recognized him. He was ranking her, marking her in some awful and withering way. Be friends, he said. She found she was shaking her head, trying to disbelieve the moment, to make it reversible, a misunderstanding. He watched her. She was standing near the bed, and this was precisely the information contained in his look. These two things, her and the bed. He shrugged as if to say, it's only right, because what's the point of being here if we don't do what we're here to do? Then he took off his jacket, a set of unhurried movements that seemed to use up the room. In the rumpled white shirt he was bigger than ever, sweating, completely unknown to her. He held the jacket at his side, arm extended. See how easy? Now you, start with the shoes, he said, first one, then the other. She went toward the bathroom. She didn't know what to do. She walked along the wall, head down, a person marching blindly, and went into the bathroom. She closed the door but was afraid to lock it. She thought it would make him angry, provoke him to do something, wreck something, worse. She did not slide the bolt. She was determined not to do this unless she heard him approach the bathroom. She didn't think he'd moved. She was certain, nearly certain, that he was standing near the coffee table. She said, please leave. Her voice was unnatural, so fluted and small it scared her further. Then she heard him move. It sounded almost leisurely. It was a saunter almost, and it took him past the radiator, where the cover rattled slightly, and in the direction of the bed. You have to go, she said, louder now. He was sitting on the bed, unbuckling his belt. This is what she thought she heard. "'the tip of the belt sliding out of the loop, "'and then a little flick of tongue and clasp. "'She heard the zipper coming down. "'She stood against the bathroom door. "'After a while she heard him breathing, "'a sound of concentrated work, nasal and cadenced. "'She stood there and waited, head down, body on the door. "'There was nothing she could do but listen and wait. "'When he was finished, there was a long pause, "'then some rustling and shifting.' She thought she heard him put on his jacket. He came toward her now. She realized she could have locked the door earlier when he was on the bed. She stood there and waited. Then she felt him lean against the door, the dead weight of him, an inch away, not pushing but sagging. She slid the bolt into the chamber quietly. He was pressed there, breathing, sinking into the door. He said, "'Forgive me.' His voice was barely audible close to a moan. She stood there and waited. He said, I'm so sorry. Please, I don't know what to say. She waited for him to leave. When she heard him cross the room and close the door behind him, finally, she waited a full minute longer. Then she came out of the bathroom and locked the front door. She saw everything twice now. She was where she wanted to be and alone, but nothing was the same. Bastard. Nearly everything in the room had a double effect, what it was and the association it carried in her mind. She went out walking, and when she came back, the connection was still there, at the coffee table, on the bed, in the bathroom. Bastard. She had dinner in a small restaurant nearby and went to bed early. When she went back to the museum the next morning, he was alone in the gallery seated on the bench in the middle of the room, his back to the entranceway. And he was looking at the last painting in the cycle, the largest by far and maybe the most breathtaking, the one with the coffins and cross, called Funeral.
0: That was chang Lee reading Don DeLillo's story, Bader meinhof which was first published in The New Yorker in April of 2002. So Cheng Wei, you know some some stories about sort of chance encounters like this seem to kind of start off okay, and and, and then everything turns sinister. This one to me seems kind of sinister from the get go. There's there's just something wrong about this man. There's something a little off. She's not very impressed with him. She doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. Why does she go to the snack bar with him? Why does she take him home?
1: I think one of the the ways I I see her is that she's she's someone who's put herself in a certain situation. Uh, like a lot of little characters, where she doesn't know what she's going to do until she gets there. She's always on the cusp of something. Everything is imminent. Time is flowing, but there's no story. There's no sort of background to prepare us for what might happen in the present time or in the future. Everything is sort of improvised, but not improvised purposefully. And I think that's what it adds also to the creepiness of this story and a lot of DeLillo's work. There's this kind of pressure in the atmosphere of this room that she can't quite understand, but she, she definitely feels it. And he, maybe through his language, maybe through his viewing of her, uh, in which he, he seems to at least think that he knows what she is, you know, a teacher of art for handicapped children, he's kind of connected into that and he's shaping her. He's shaping her her reactions.
0: There's a, a quote from an interview with DeLillo from the early 90s in which he said, true terror is a language and a vision. There's a deep narrative structure to terrorist acts and they infiltrate and alter consciousness in ways that writers used to aspire to. And I, I think about that with this story. What the woman is witnessing in the images, it's not a terror itself, it's the aftermath of terror. It's also death and mortality. And it seems to alter her consciousness in the way that he's talking about. These images enter into her. They make her feel helpless. And in a sense, I thought she purposefully made herself helpless in response to that. And that might be why she was submitting, submitting to this man.
1: I definitely feel as if she's obviously been emotionally changed by these images, and that's why she's going every day. And I don't know if we can really, we'd like to say this anymore after 9-11, but, you know, there's a sense that the terrorists are the grand artists of our time. You know, that they, they can reach into us with imagery and action in a manner that any novelist would love to be able to do. Obviously, after 9-11, it's, it's kind of painful. Yeah, um, a
0: painful analogy.
1: A painful analogy. But if you really think about 9-11, it, there's a way to look at that, that, that day as the grandest spectacle, the grandest contrived spectacle of all time, and a story, of course, in itself. So she's, she's subject to that. I think it's interesting that you say that she purposefully or she's willingly subject to that. I'm not sure I feel like she's purposefully doing it. I think she's sort of helpless. She can't quite help herself. Mm-hmm. She says she doesn't know who she is at that moment. You know, that's the sense of it. She's lost herself. This person who is you know inviting this strange fellow into her apartment is not the same woman. And, of course, can't be judged in the same way you
0: also get the sense that she that she herself wants to be seen in some new way in the way that she's seeing the painting she wants to be sort of viewed by this man and then there's that amazing moment when he actually does look at her you know like a work of art and, and the the words that that Delillo uses are you know measuring ranking marking and she's completely frozen by it
1: and even before that scene i think we're set up for that for that marking and that ranking when they're still in the coffee shop and then we see their a, a faint reflection of both of them. It seems to set up the idea that that they're being screened, that there's always this simulacra of everything that one is or does.
0: What do you think it means that they both go back to the museum the next day?
1: The story is not over after he leaves her apartment. There is no story. The story is about a certain kind of obsession and linkage. And that linkage, of course, has to be renewed. So I think that's how I make sense of her going back. Uh, she's in in some ways, what happened to her the night the day before is an irrelevant story, or a story that's completely over. She's someone who seems to you know need the venue and the connections that it gives her.
0: Do you think there's going to be a replay?
1: <laughs> no, I think no. Of course not. I think the replay, but the replay will be similar but distorted again. That's what I love about DeLillo, is that characters find themselves in situations, uh, in echoed situations throughout his stories.
0: I wondered what we were supposed to make of the the fact that he's looking at the funeral painting. You know, she's looked at this one the day before and, and noticed this cross, and her feeling about it was that this painting implied some form of forgiveness. You know, of course, when he, when he leaves the day before, he asks her to forgive him. I wondered if we were supposed to make a connection there, if, if she is about to forgive him, in a sense.
1: I didn't quite think about forgiveness there. I thought, you know, that the choice of that picture, that work, at the end of the story, for me, it's a picture that's blurred. It's sort of unseeable. And yet, unlike the others, many of which, as described in the story, uh, are very intimate sightings of body of wounds, it's a picture of um, of a gathering uh, of sort of mass action, and there's something about that—a kind of spectacle—that that I felt was fitting for the end of the story. That that they had, in some ways, attended this funeral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they were participating in it anonymously now.
0: Well, there's this, this sort of sense of, of creepy mortality throughout. I mean, yeah. even that first paragraph, it opens, she, she says she feels like she's sitting in a mortuary chapel keeping watch over a dead body.
1: Right, but what's died, right? Well,
0: exactly. <laughs> and
1: the, the question of, of what's died is, is the one that I think lingers. And uh, at the end, I think what's died is, for these two characters, a certain sense of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, when he asks for forgiveness, he's been transformed into someone who you know, could actually do that. I, I was surprised that he asked for forgiveness when he did. Uh, and she's she's been changed by by the experience as well.
0: You know, um, Don's book editor, Nan Graham, said that when he was starting to write Mao II, he had two folders. One, one of them was marked art and the other one was marked terror. And those two folders sort of eventually merged into one. And those seem to be the two currents that have been crucial for most of his career. Of course, they're both crucial here. Do you think that that one sort of takes weight over the other in this story? And what what form is the terror taking in this story?
1: That's, I think, what so interests DeLillo about art, the kind of power and the kind of ensnarement, frustrating ensnarement, that it can wrap around a reader or a viewer.
0: it can terrorize the mind.
1: Yeah, and maybe we should think about the word terror more broadly than how we probably and can only see it at this very moment in our culture and history.
0: Though it's notable that this story was written in in early 2002, 2002. less than six months after 9-11. Yeah.
1: yeah. But the terror is, you know, in, in some sense, apolitical. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, in yeah. this story. <laughs> well, mean,
0: psychological.
1: It's psychological. Uh, yeah, right. It's psychological. I mean, it's astounding to think that given the, the background of the uh, Red Army faction and, and the very political ends that, uh, and interests of that group. Yeah. Uh, and The very political act of, of course, 9-11. But this story is, and I think uh, really his work in general, is more, much more concerned with, ultimately, a kind of psychological transformation.
0: Well, thank you so much, Cheng Ray. Thanks, Deborah. Cheng Ray Lee's latest novel is called The Surrendered. You can read some of his work on our website, newyorker.com, where you'll also find a recent story by Don DeLillo. You can subscribe and download previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. Just search for The New Yorker. Also, let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.